Good afternoon. My name is Asha Castleberry. Um, I'm an adjunct uh, fellow at American Security Project. And today I am excited to be here because we will be uh, discussing a very important topic with regards to U.S. military installations and how they serve as um, uh, strategic, or represent our, our strategic interests in terms of our national security. So we'll be highlighting important topics in terms of how that relates to uh, US mil the role of U.S. military installations. Um, before we start, I would first like to tell you that I'm also excited here to be here because I've spent three years as a frontline understanding the importance of U.S. military installations in the Middle East region. So uh, this is very exciting to me. And so now I will turn and open up to the uh, panel. And first, I will introduce them, uh, read their bios. So first, we will uh, first introduce um, Brigadier General Stephen A. Cheney. Um, he is uh, the CEO of American Security Project. Um, uh, Stephen, uh, Brigadier General excuse me, uh, Stephen Cheney is the Chief Executive Officer of the American Security Project. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and has over 30 years of experience as a Marine. General Cheney's uh, primary specialty was artillery, but he focused extensively on um, entry-level training, commanding at every echelon at both Marine Corps uh, recruit despot and serving as the Commanding General at, at Paris Island. Most recently, he served on Secretary Kerry's Foreign Affairs Advisory Board and Department of State's International Security Advisory Board. Then we also have David DeRoche, who is the Near East South Asia Center for Security Studies. Uh, Mr. David DeRoche is an associate professor at the Near East South Asia Center for Security Studies. Prior to this, he was the director responsible for defense policy concerning KSA, also known as Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, Oman, the UAE, and Yemen. He has also served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense as the DOD liaison to the Department of Homeland Security, as the, as the Senior Country Director for Pakistan, as the uh, NATO Operations Director, and as the De Deputy Director for Peacekeeping. An Airborne Ranger in the Army Reserves, he was awarded the Bronze Star for service in <coughs> Afghanistan. We also have uh, Staff Major General, also Liwa Nasir Abdulaziz Alatia, Inspector General Qatar Armed Forces. After graduating from the Royal Navy Naval College in the UK, Staff uh, Major General Alatia joined the Qatar Armed Forces in eight, 1986. He was an executive officer and navigation officer on the uh, missile boat on surface weapons office on the uh, Haiwar missile boat as well as the Haiwar missile boat assistant commander and the Haiwar missile boat commander. He was the office director of Hi His Highness Commander in the Chief from 2003 to 2008. Um, uh, the Staff Major General was the Qatar uh, Duty Force Commander for Peacekeeper 2006 to 2008 and then transferred from His Highness the Emir's office to the office of Inspector General in 2016 where he is now where he now works. So now we will open up to Brigadier General Cheney. Asha, thank you very much and I want to thank the audience for coming. We pulled this event together about two weeks ago with the assistance of the Qataris so I'm internally grateful and to have somebody of the stature of Major General Alataya with us. We're, we're, we wanted to take advantage of that opportunity because you have just tremendous experience with U.S. spacing in particular, and I hope you'll touch on that topic when you, when you speak. Um, 
you must be dedicated foreign policy, uh, foreign policy analysts here because Tiger Woods is now at minus two. He's on about the sixth hole. <coughs> um, and we're 25 minutes away from the first pitch down at Nationals. So uh, I appreciate your dedication. Um, as I mentioned to General Alataya earlier, I was the Inspector General for the Marine Corps for two years. And I was trying to see if it was roughly analogous to you being the Inspector General of the Qatar Army. And it's not exactly analogous, but, it, but it's close. And, and just to talk about the IG job for a minute, and several here are familiar, uh, when the IG shows up on your doorstep and you're the Commanding General of the 1st Marine Division and you, and you walk in, uh, he is not exactly happy to see you. Um, so it's, it's a tough job. It really is a tough job, but I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. And David, uh, your resume speaks for itself, uh, your experience there, your combat experience. Um, you and, certainly... And some, and some fights with the IG as well. Well, <laughs> we, we won't go into those. The, uh, but uh, I'm very interested to hear your insights into this. This, this panel day is not expected to be all-inclusive. We could talk about U.S. strategic assets in the Persian Gulf for years if we wanted to. Uh, although I think right now is a, a very opportune time for us to be doing this. Certainly with the uh, series of events that have taken place almost daily uh, that, that's going on talking about U.S. basing and you know the president saying we're pulling out of Syria, then no, we're going back into Syria. I mean, uh, General Votel being in front of USIP the other day talking about U.S. troops and basing. Um, I think there'd be pretty much unanimous agreement that our troop presence there is a positive thing and, it's, and it enhances stability in the Persian Gulf. Um, there's no doubt, in our opinion, that having the presence of U.S. troops in various countries helps lower the risk of armed conflicts in those countries. Uh, certainly, we would prefer not to see armed conflict. And it bears to the founding of the American Security Project back in 2004-2005 when uh, then-Senator Kerry, who was not happy about the outcome of the 2004 election, uh, said, how come whenever he talked about diplomacy instead of military force, when he talked about climate change as a national security issue, uh, he wasn't listened to all that well, and he was painted perhaps as the left-wing liberal that he was. So his thought there was, let's put together a nonprofit that will have eight retired military officers, three and four-star, two from each service, recently retired, who can talk the security implications of our presence around the world and perhaps maybe touch on diplomacy being perhaps in some cases more important than military force. Uh, and one of those founding members was a guy named Admiral Fox Fallon, who was a Central Command commander. At one time, I know you know General Zinni. Uh, General Zinni was on our board as well, another Central Command commander. Admiral Fallon remains on our board today, and he has strong feelings about our presence in the Middle East. Um, I won't say the U.S. defense presence is a guarantee, uh, but there's no doubt about it. It is somewhat of a tripwire here that hopefully our presence in some of these countries will deter others from being aggressive towards them. Now, that said, we are somewhat familiar after 2001-2002 that Osama bin Laden claimed one of the reasons that he executed the attack was because he took offense to the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. And as I think General Alataya would talk about, we did move troops out of Saudi Arabia. And where did we move them to? We moved them to Qatar. Uh, thank you for taking care of us. Um, you know, our bases and stations also serve on, on a public diplomacy side of the house, their interaction with uh, local populations. They build relationships. They learn the culture. They get exposure for both sides. I've been in and out of the Middle East now for three decades. Um, 
and have cultivated great friendships there, and I have wonderful people. Uh, had I not been there, I wouldn't have known. And, and just a side note, it first started with my trip to Iraq in May of 1990. If you do the time frame, that was before they attacked Kuwait. Um, had an interesting time with April Glassby as I toured the country. Um, things certainly went downhill, so maybe I shouldn't have gone there. Um, we have status of forces agreements with a number of countries, and we also have defense cooperation agreements. I know we've got one with Qatar, uh, with Saudi Arabia, with many other countries there. One of the linchpins of our presence in Iraq was a status of forces agreement. You may recall we had trouble negotiating that down in, with the Obama administration. Is one of the reasons that he said he would pull troops out of Iraq was because we could not negotiate a status of forces agreement. Of course, that didn't exactly go as planned. And of course, we ended up going back. Uh, and now, of course, the big bone of contention is how much longer are we going to stay? If you hit our website, you will see we've put up our first start at a map that maps all the installations that are there. And they're not, it's not totally inclusive, uh, but it, it shows a number of them. Uh, of course, you're familiar with the wonderful base that we have, our Ford Central Command Headquarters in Qatar. Uh, the Fifth Fleet, of course, is over in Bahrain. We have significant basing in Saudi Arabia. Uh, a lot of troops in Iraq, of course, in Syria. Um, this is just a start for us. As we develop it uh, more with time, it'll become uh, quite specific, and I hope you'll be able to use it. Uh, today, I, I hope we will focus more on the Persian Gulf side of it. We will hold further panels that, that will you know, broaden or encompass other countries. Um, perhaps talking the Israeli situation, maybe pull in, talk about Hezbollah, Lebanon, uh, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which are all factors in our basing that are over there. Um, we will do, certainly do that in the future. And of course, I, I kind of left out a little bit about Turkey and Incirlik and Russia. Uh, certainly problematic when you have Russia, uh, Iran, and Turkey talking about the future of Syria when we're not involved in those talks whatsoever. Uh, I think that's a tough one for our current administration to handle. So with that, I think that gives you get a, a, where ASP is coming from on here. I hope to get two really great perspectives, and I'm going to lateral the ball over to David. Me? Okay, thank you. Slide, please. Um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, General. I, 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 I knew you were an artilleryman, which scared me from the start, but, <laughs> but I didn't realize you were an inspector general as well, so I will choose my words carefully. You know what they say, artillery lends dignity to what would otherwise be a vulgar brawl. <laughs> uh, that's true. And uh, in case you're wondering, I am a ranger, and the N in ranger stands for knowledge. Um, so the... Uh, <laughs> I also have a, a sailor on the other side of me, and uh, I'm, uh, uh, I, I had actually enlisted in the Navy uh, before I uh, was accepted to the Naval Academy and the Military Academy. We always say that a midshipman and a cadet have one thing in common. They were both accepted to the Naval Academy. Um, I have to point out here that I speak only for myself, and seeing as how the Commandant of National, or the President of National Defense University is also a Naval Academy graduate, I speak only for myself and not for the U.S. government. I surely don't speak for Admiral Rogge. Um, this is my Facebook, my Twitter page, if you'd like to follow me and dispute what I say online. Next slide, please. This is a map of U.S. bases in the, in the Gulf region. It purports to be a map of U.S. bases in the Gulf region. It is actually produced by the Iranian Foreign Ministry. If you Google U.S. bases in the Gulf and then click on images, this will be one of the top ten pictures you'll see. And it shows the success of Iranian psychological warfare. Um, basically, many of these things identified as bases either are not bases or there are 
Americans have uh, resided, like a dormitory community, for example, Escon Village, which is literally a collection of villas, a gymnasium, and a community club with a fence around it. It's incapable of projecting power. It's incapable even of, of um, itself. Um, Muscat International Airport is listed as a U.S. military facility because there's a hangar there that processes mail. Um, but some of these are bases. Next slide. This is perhaps a more accurate depiction of bases in the Gulf, although it misses one uh, thumb rate in um, uh, Sieb down in, in Thumrait off Salala um, in Oman. Um, and what you see here is you have a mixture of forces uh, in the Gulf. Uh, they're based on power projection. I'm going to talk a little bit about the consideration that goes into these bases because there is a lot of uh, misconceptions out there about what actually is a base and what, what a base does. And then I'm going to talk about some of the considerations that make a base viable. And they're not necessarily what you might think. Next slide, please. This is the base in Bahrain. This is a few years old. There have been some facilities uh, built here. But this is a rather small base. Most people, when they hear about the naval base in Bahrain, um, they imagine an enclosed basin with dry docks. They think something like Saint-Nazaire. Um, no, this is indistinguishable, and you can drive past it, indistinguishable from an industrial park. Uh, and the command and control functions could be uh, relocated almost immediately, uh, either to a ship or back to the United States or indeed to another country. What, but I would argue that the Bahrain base is probably the single most important facility that the United States has in the Gulf for. Next slide. This reason, the Bahrain American School. There is a school elementary through high school, Department of Defense school there, that not only trains the dependents of Americans, but also trains uh, Bahrainis and indeed people from other in uh, education. The Crown Prince of Bahrain is a graduate. Uh, there is no power projection, soft power projection capability more accomplished than the American school in Bahrain. We have more graduates from the Arab world, the American school of Bahrain, than I believe at Fulbright scholars in the Arab world. And this is something that is not commonly considered in the dialogue. It's more than just the force protection. It is soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, and by the way, Coast Guardsmen um, interacting with the population. In some instances, as in Bahrain, that is a net strength. In other instances, it can be a net disadvantage. Next slide, please. Of course, this is uh, uh, I'm sorry, this is El Yadid Air Base, uh, part of El Yadid Air Base. This is what everybody talks about. Um, people obsess on the infrastructure uh, and with the buildings there. They are indeed significant. You can look uh, uh, on any number of open source websites or commercial imagery, and you can find all kinds of funny stuff. For example, when the Command Control Center opened, much was made of the fact that it had three handicapped parking spots right in front of it as an active military headquarters. Um, I, I went to the PX there one time. I was in a car with a Brigadier General, and I was a reserve colonel. There was another colonel, and we noticed that there were reserve parking spaces for a Brigadier General and then two colonel spaces, so we suggested parking the car sideways across the three slots uh, <laughs> since it was there. Um, but the, the utility of El Yadid Air Base, or indeed any other air base, is more than just the physical infrastructure. The physical infrastructure is significant. The physical infrastructure is costly. And given the color of money issues in the US military, where you cannot transfer money that goes for training to construction or from troop maintenance to construction, military construction is scrutinized extremely closely by the US Congress. And the most difficult 
category of money to get out of the U.S. Congress is military construction overseas. Because um, you know, staffers start with the perspective, why are you building this in another country and not, oh, in my district? So um, that is an issue. Next slide. This is El Dafra Air Base in the UAE. Um, it's a large air base. It's a very competent air base, uh, very capable, uh, but it lacks some capacities of other air bases. This is not to say that one's better than the other. What it is to say is that each has different capability. And as Americans, our role is to determine what our needs are and what are the best platforms for projecting our power. And we should note that these bases are occupied and maintained uh, according to limitations set by the host nation, in order to project American interests. In general, those interests align with those of the host countries, but not always. And so we should approach every base with the perspective, what's in it for us. Uh, I refer to this as the Jackson Plan. And uh, I mean, Janet, not Andrew, what have you done for me lately? So we need to look at that. Next slide, please. This is a B-52 on the tarmac at El Yadid Air Base. El Yadid Air Base is the only air base in the United States that can handle a B-52. Full stop. So um, regardless of wh whether the government is in favor or out of favor, if you want to operate a B-52, it has to be done from there. Should we have more air bases capable of doing this? Yes. Will we be able to build those? Probably not. So if somebody wants to see that capacity there and wishes to host these, I uh, give the advice of Kevin Costner. Build it, and they will come. Actually, build it, and they might come. Uh, so there we have it. Next slide, please. This is the airborne, uh, I'm sorry, the CAOC, Combined Air Operations Center at El Yadid Air Base. You'll note that you see uniforms from a variety of countries in there. The uh, commander sits in the windowed thing to the top, and the various cells conduct their mission there. It is interesting that this is conducted in El Yadid Air Base in the state of Qatar, but it is not necessary. This activity could move, assuming continuity of communications, to virtually any location in the world, either on land or at sea. Um, people talk a lot about this, but this is perhaps the least consequential aspect of the huge base at El Yadid the military function. I would argue it is more significant that these soldiers have bedding, that these soldiers have a gymnasium, a swimming pool, and some sort of recreational facility for them to be in. And that stuff is all expensive. And that stuff is hard to pry out of Congress. So if you have a facility where those secondary char characteristics, such as recreation, are available, schools for dependents, if you want to have those, as you have in Bahrain, that is something that should not be sniffed at. Now let me talk a little bit about some of the considerations. Next slide. Does anybody know who this pilot is? Oh, I'm disappointed. Martha McSally, yeah. Martha McSally, um, who is currently a US congressman from Tucson, Arizona. Often forgotten, but prior to 9-11, the major military issue between the United States and Saudi Arabia was that uh, A-10 pilot McSally, who was flying Operation Southern Watch missions over Iraq, wrote to her members of Congress saying, I fly missions over Iraq, I park my aircraft, and then I am not allowed to drive. And there were movements in Congress to consider tweaking the relationship with Saudi Arabia based on that. I put this up here to point out that one aspect of a base is that the base must be culturally appropriate for American forces. In the Ryukyu Islands in the 1970s, when there were issues between you know, Okinawa, Seipantini, and all that, we 
were still under U.S. military administration until 1972. In the negotiations for the bases, the Japanese at one point said, we'd be willing to have your forces here provided they are not black. That, of course, is unacceptable to the United States. And there are a number of issues there that cultures, LGBT, whatever, um, that have to be taken into account. And so the legal issues in a democracy are as important as the facility and the fiscal issues. And those legal issues have to be taken into account. And we need to come into this with our eyes open. A country that allows us to do things that we expect our free citizens to do um, is important. And that is an aspect for basing in a democracy if we're not in a direct time of war. Next slide, please. This is the least offensive example I could draw from um, a series of religious tracts called Chick Comics. You might have seen these little, this Jack Chick who produced these just died. He viewed Catholics and Muslims as pagan. Um, he's an extremist. I put this up there because, as a former inspector general knows, and as a commander you know as well, one of the Iron Law's rules of military combat is SDSS. Soldiers do stupid stuff. And uh, their dependents do as well. And one thing we ought to keep in mind, if we have large numbers of forces based in the Middle East, as a statistical certainty, one of these forces or one of their dependents will think that part of their purpose in being in the Middle East is to convert the inhabitants to Christianity and will disseminate tracts like this. And we need to ask ourselves in each country, what will happen when the wife of an airman hands out something that says, you know, Muhammad is a false god and is arrested by the local police? And that needs to be worked out in advance. And if you don't have an arrangement for that, then you have to limit the size and the duration of your forces, or you have to limit your agreement. And that is just as important in a democracy as tarmac. Next slide, please. This is a historical Air Force photograph showing an M60 tank being loaded on the back of the C-5 during Operation Nickel Weed. Operation Nickel Weed was the armor vehicle resupply of Israel during the 1973 war. During that war, every NATO country uh, the United States thought that our bases, our air bases in NATO countries were American bases. We soon discovered, no, they are NATO bases, and they exist solely for NATO contingencies. And so some of our most loyal allies, England, Germany, the Netherlands, France, yes, I said France, denied us access to the air bases to resupply Israel because they said that is not a NATO mission. Only Portugal came through. And without the ability to land these heavy aircraft in Lages Field, the resupply of the Israeli armor, which was deemed, you can disagree with the purpose, but it was deemed by the U.S. government to be in the U.S. national interest. We were only able to do that because we maintained a multitude of bases in a multitude of countries. And if you had asked any American defense planner in 1972 what is the most important European country for basing, Portugal probably would have been fifth, sixth, or seventh on the list. So my point here is that you need to have a constellation of bases because bases could be denied for political purposes. Bases could be denied even with the best of allies, say if, I don't know, members of the royal family are taken hostage and the country is coerced, or because we're extraditing somebody who maybe has a local thing. There are any number of scenarios. It suits American interests to have a constellation of bases. And to remember, as uh, Lord Palmerston advised Queen Victoria, we have neither permanent enemies nor permanent friends. We have permanent interests. Next slide. Does anybody recognize this? I know you do, General. <laughs> 
Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The idea that somehow an American base constitutes an acknowledgment or an endorsement of the host nation is something that is unknown in American history. We have a base in Cuba. We have it to serve our needs. When it no longer serves our needs, we will leave. We have it there, not out of love for the Cuban people, not because we think the Cuban regime is a great thing. We have it there because it serves our interests. And that should be the sole consideration. Granted, short term, long term, the immediate interest may not be the same as a long term interest, but it is to serve our interests. Final slide. And with that, I will turn it over to a more experienced uh, speaker, and I will welcome your most difficult questions. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, Major General Nasser Al Atiyah, Inspector General, Ministry of Defense, State of Qatar. It is a great honor for me to participate in this panel and to be a part of the speakers today at American Security Project. To share thoughts and ideas on such an important topic, the U.S. military facilities in the Middle East furthering American security strategic interest. Briefly, I would like to start with a short introduction on Qatar and United States relations. Qatar has been a strong and willing partner of the United States for over 20 years. The United States and Qatar coordinate closely on a wide range of regional and global issues, supporting the process of stability and the prosperity in the region. Qatar currently view the United States as a guarantor of the, of, the, of the Gulf security, as well sees the importance of the strategic relationship in many aspects with the United States. As a strategic ally, we in Doha recognize the presence of U.S. forces in the state of Qatar has positive mutual influence through the concept of regional and international security. Qatar signed a broad memorandum of understanding with the United States in 2017, cooperate against international tourism. The state of Qatar has the right element and environment of stability for hoisting our strategic allies with capability providing the maximum facility required and the freedom of movement. Qatar stands at third spot in the list of the world's biggest natural gas reserve. The country has about 13% of the world's total natural gas reserve. Qatar economy is one of the richest economy in the world. So the United States has developed important, long-lasting trade relations uh, with, the, with the Qatar and continue to grow each year. Uh, the United States is the greatest foreign investor in Qatar gas and oil sectors. Since 1992, the United States and Qatar have had a formal defense cooperation agreement, DCA, and Al Udaid Air Base has been a critical importance to all U.S. military lead operations in the region since 2003. Qatar gentlemen stepped up within 24 hours only when U.S. had options. Uh, has had uh, few options in the region in 2003 when basing in Saudi Arabia became problematic. While Qatar is willing to allow a U.S. access and basing, has not always been pop popular in the region. 
and likely made Qatar a target for extremists. We have the nevertheless maintain a loyal to their relationship and view U.S. as a force of stability in the region. Moreover, U.S. forces stations in Qatar are favorite and welcomed by Qataris. There are over 10,000 American troops in Qatar supporting U.S. interest at Al-Udaid Air Base, which is the largest Americans air overseas air base that hosts CENTCOM and U.S. Force Central Command and U.S. Central Operation Forward. Qatar-basing Qatar access and overfly over have been critical aspect U.S. military strategy in the region since the Gulf War and throughout Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraq Freedom, and Operation Inherit Resolved, and all other operations since, since the 1990s. Qatar, have, Qatar has provided $4 billion U.S. dollar to fund Al-Udaid Air Base used by U.S. and coalition forces. U.S. taxpayers have also spent hundreds of million to develop state-of-the-art facilities. Qatar is currently the second largest U.S. foreign sales within 25 billion that have resulted in over 110,000 American jobs. Enormous cooperation with diversity amount of U.S. arms sales to Qatar, such as F-15s, C-17, C-130, Apache helicopters, Patriot missiles, Javelin missiles, ship self-defense, and early warning radar, and many projects such as IT, aviation medical center, and support and training. In late January 2018, and uh, in, in late January 18, Qatar and United States held a strategic dialogue in Washington, D.C., which U.S. officials held a strong U.S.-Qatar partner to many France signaled the potential for enduring U.S. basing in Qatar. Qatar is planning to expand and enhance Al-Udaid Air Base facility over two decades and an effort what would facilitate a long-term strategic partnership with U.S. His Excellency Dr. Khaled Al-Atiyah, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of State for, for, for Defense Affairs, during his recent visit to Washington, D.C., he clearly declared planning to build hundreds of new houses for, 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 to American families who are served, in, uh, served at U.S. Uh, Air Force Central Command in Doha. Studying the needs have been in consideration to keep our strategic allies more comfortable. In addition to Al-Udaid expansion, Qatar is building a new new Navy base that will have the capability to birth large U.S. Navy ships. The state of Qatar always willing to develop and to build strategic relation with the United States in order to enhance security, political, economic, and stability, and, so and, so and social stability. There are always priorities and common interests. We, in we see uh, we see U.S.-Qatar relation as one of our top priority, 
ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank you again for inviting me to this conference and to give me the opportunity uh, to talk about uh, this an important issue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, thank you so much for the excellent points. I understand as far as as a soldier who also served in some of these bases like Camp Salia, Camp Arajan, Camp Buren, <laughs> I understand the importance of how uh, these bases have served our uh, better served our rapid deployments, our logistical support, financial assistance, security cooperation, um, some of the CENTCOM exercises that we've also participated in. So it's very important in terms of our interest in the um, in the uh, region as well as with our allies. Um, going back to the issue or just the key point with regards to the DCA. I think that's very important to talk about. Um, most of these, um, our partners in the region maintain some sort of bilateral security agreement with the United States and I want to definitely focus on uh, some of them, especially with the Qatari DCA. We see over time in the news that there's ongoing geopolitical challenges in the region which at the end of the day impacts our, our interests and our strategy over time. So just open up a question to the panelists. How uh, do these current geopolitical challenges within the region, uh, how do you see them uh, over time impacting our security uh, agreements with our allies in the region? Okay. I mean, uh, the first D DCA actually signed in 1992. Mm -hmm. And uh, for after 10 years, I mean, we are talking about 2002, when the basing became problematic in the region for the Americans' uh, soldiers. So Qatar stepped up uh, and they took the decision within only 24 hours and said, we must welcome. So um, in our region, is, um, everything can be changed in overnight, you know, uh, you can't not tell. But uh, the, 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 the agreement uh, back in 2002 signed was for 20 years. Uh, that the American will stay in Olydid Air Base, and they did. And there is another agreement has been signed in 2013 for another 10 years also. So we are talking about until uh, the presence in, in, in Olydid uh, uh, until 2023. You know, if you want to get a primer on status of forces agreements, I recommend you Google the International Security Advisory Board at the State Department. We did a study on SOFAs. Uh, two years plus that we put out you know, about a year and a half ago, which discusses status of forces agreements uh, in quite some depth. Um, the U.S. will not position troops in a country without either a SOFA or a DCA. And within either one of those, you will have legal protections uh, for our people, predominantly so that they won't be tried in courts in that country if they do something wrong. And it, it bends to what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, Japan, I, I spent several years uh, in Okinawa, uh, right after 72, when they when they mm -hmm. turned it over to the U.S., and we have an extensive status of forces agreement with the Japanese. When you watch the coverage of what goes on there, it's cyclical. Maybe every 10 years, a Marine does something really stupid, and mm -hmm. uh, like gets drunk and kills somebody, and then you've got a big eruption in the local press, and they talk about throwing troops out. But that particular SOFA will cover that particular individual. Now, the United States can turn that individual over to local authorities prosecution and has done that on occasion. Uh, but in most countries, mm, not most, but in some we would not do that. We would prosecute that person under our own, own laws. And that applies to the same countries that we have in the Persian Gulf. We have either a status of forces agreement or a defense cooperation agreement. Uh, 
Uh, that's not working. <coughs> Okay, thanks. Can you hear me better now? Um, so we have agreements throughout the Middle East, and of course the one we have with, with Qatar is a particularly good one and a lengthy one uh, and a requirement. I did mention the one that we had in Iraq, uh, which could not be negotiated appropriately, could not get the legal protections that we wanted, and that was one of the cornerstones for the Obama administration wanted to pull the troops out of Iraq, saying we couldn't get a negotiated SOFA. Uh, so uh, to get back to what you're talking, Asha, we have to have a status of force agreement or a defense cooperation agreement with all these countries. The one we have with Qatar is a particularly good one. Um, I'll just make one point, which is the extraterritoriality of the SOFA agreement is a problem in almost every country in the world. It's particularly resonant in the Middle East writ large because it seems to... Um, play on the capitulations under the Ottoman Empire that, that the colonial powers got where, you know, Frenchmen couldn't be tried for crimes in Lebanon. And so even though it's a universal American concern for basing forces, and, you know, it's been a huge issue is when a Marine Corps airplane cut a cable car in Italy and killed some people. It's been a huge um, issue uh, around the world, but the history in the Middle East, because of the capitulations under the Ottoman Empire, makes it a little bit more resonant, more difficult. And so, uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm a little surprised that you're discussing it so openly, because normally folks in the Middle East don't discuss the, the uh, arrangements of the DCA. Yes, I agree. Uh, uh, I definitely experienced that in Kuwait, where uh, they have a huge DCA as a result of the uh, 91 um, uh, issue with, uh, with Saddam Hussein, the um, United States had established a long-term uh, DCA agreement with Kuwait. And I must say, uh, there was a lot of things that happened with regards to moving forward with them, but they have definitely played a, a very important role, especially when it comes to uh, what I saw in person, uh, you know, the 2011 troop withdrawal coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, that's uh, very important to note. Um, now I'd like to open up to Q&A, uh, so we can start. We've got a roving mic here, so uh, it'll come over. If you could please identify yourself and make it a question and not a speech. <coughs> and we, our first question. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, my name is Tom Dine, and I'm associated, affiliated with the uh, Insight Advisory Group, but I've had a lot of experience in the U.S. government on the diplomatic side and development side. And I'm quite conscious of these status of forces agreements because they've really worked over the long, over the long haul. Uh, General al uh the U.S.-Qatar relationship was, was put into jeopardy just a short time ago by, by, uh, the o by UAE and Saudi Arabia. And I was quite surprised that the White House's first reaction. But having said that, I think uh, the strength of the U.S. Gutter bilateral relationship uh, proved its, its value. Yet there are two hot-button issues that I think need, need uh, more attention by your government, and that is terrorism, and you know the, you know the charges there, and your, your relationship with Israel. If you could overcome those two issues, man, you'll get a, you'll get a big prize somehow or another. Uh, but could you comment on those two hot-button issues, please? 
regarding uh, terrorism, uh, we already uh, mentioned that we already signed a memorandum of understanding back last year in 2017 with the United States. Uh, and uh, this memorandum of understanding uh, cover a lot of aspects, uh, if it's not all, all of the aspects regarding terrorism, either inside or outside of my region. Uh, regarding the issue uh, of Israel and the relation, is, uh, this is a political question, uh, is out of my, uh, you know, uh, arena. Uh, I would rather uh, uh, keep it for um, the political people to answer it. Smart man. Yes. Why? They, they, they don't just hand stars out. Okay. <laughs> Good afternoon, and thank you again for what are always great presentations here. My name is Maureen Coates. Uh, I'm the former Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, Environment, and Logistics. And uh, a quick clarification. I was in the senior leadership of the Air Force at the time of the McSally case, and I do want to clarify that Ms. McSally, Sally was not just upset about not being able to drive. She was actually compelled to wear a burqa when she left the base, among other things. Good point. So, uh, and she Thank had you. to sue the Secretary of Defense to get the things ha uh, heard. And I won't repeat to you the comments that were being made in the general officer mess about the personality and inclinations of United States Air Force pilot. But let's just say we're, we had our Weinstein moments many years ago. Um, I do want to... Uh, take up a, a point that I heard about the CAOC. Mm -hmm. uh, I am well aware of the prejudices towards land and facilities that exists in the uh, infrastructure rubric. Um, CAOCs don't exist unless they have land and facilities and people and frequency and spectrum and a couple of other things. So um, could we hear a little bit perhaps about how Middle East basing is perhaps a better place because of the availability of frequency? There's less competition. It's in a better longitudinal, longitudinal spot to use the satellites and the geosynchronous orbits and so things like that. And therefore, um, maybe CAOCs are some of the most important things we put in the Middle East, not just B-52 eligible runways. That's for me. Eh? <laughs> I was going to say that's for you, David. Well, I have a feeling you know more than I do. So, would, would you like to make the point, or? Well, I thank you. I thank you for for piling on to my point about Martha McSally. You're right. It was more than that, um, but it was a uh, uh, that was a defining issue in the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. So it pointed to a fundamental flaw, and it is true. I think I, I think I caveated my remarks by saying as long as communications work. When I said about moving these things, as long as communications work, I, I think your, the point of your question seems to be that you're assuming a hell of a lot there, young man, which uh, I think is, is a fair, is fair criticism. So yeah, in general, you're better off located closer to where you operate. Um, you know, the, uh, it's been noticed recently that there's a lot of uh, Russian naval activity in the location of underwater cables. Uh, the, the ability to take out satellites, to disable satellite communications. So if you have um, a facility located more and more remotely, then you limit the number. The more remote you get, the amount of communications, the amount of command and control diminishes uh, arithmetically originally and then logarithmically as you get far, farther afield. And if there is some sort of exceptional uh, 
uh, events such as disruption of physical infrastructure, dredging underseas cable, uh, destruction of satellites, solar flares, things like that, then you have a problem and you cannot uh, use some of the, the um, things like AM, FM radio or things like that. You know, the only thing you, you can do is AM bouncing off satellite. Uh, you're basically back to World War II communication. So that's no good. So there is, there is a value to being closer. There is a value to being closer. But the, um, uh, in general, we don't plan for those things. <laughs> and so uh, I, I think that, uh, I think that uh, my point still stands uh, uh, that the, the point I was trying to make was that everybody obsesses to that and ignores the quality of life, life support systems that when you have soldiers in an area for 18, 15, 20 years. And Congress is generally very quick to approve the command and control facility, but generally will not come up with the money for the quality of life facilities. And uh, so if you have a base that has those quality of life facilities, you should not treat that in a cavalier manner. It's not such a small thing. So I, I, I welcome the the elucidation of the point I'm trying to make, but I don't think our points disagree with each other. So thank you no, for that. I wasn't putting that as a point. I was just suggesting that frequency and spectrum are just as much of an asset, and we're, we're losing them. And so locating near the supply, I don't necessarily mean proximate to the bases. I mean locating near the supply of where you can get the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And, and part of the question was to touch on, are they willing to make allocations? Because yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, lady, I'm an infantryman. Yeah, Marine, good points. <laughs> yeah. I, I, just to piggyback yeah. a little bit on this, I'm not a communications expert, but um, for years being stationed in Japan, I used to think, uh, why is a third of the Marine Corps located in Okinawa? And, uh, and the Marines, not being stupid, fully recognize that almost all the infrastructure is paid for by the Japanese. So they're getting a base for free. Yeah. And yeah. people would say, well, okay, are they paying the uh, salary of these Marines? No. They're not, but if the Marines were here, we'd still be paying the salary of the Marines. So not to say it's a freebie, but it's a it kind of is. But the ancillary part of it that's much more advantageous now, especially with what's going on in Korea, here you've, you've, they're less than a day's sail away from, from North Korea. So they're, they're in the middle of where the action could well be, and the mm -hmm. same really applies, of course, in yeah. the Persian Gulf. And the communications piece is a huge piece to this. Uh, and you cut a sea cable. They're talking about the Russians now coming down the GIUK gap and cutting the cables. Uh, you're really in trouble. In the and then cyber warfare, of course, plays into this as well. Uh, it'd be just inherently foolish for us to withdraw forces from the Persian Gulf, given our strategic interests. Next question. Next question. I'm Gareth Porter. Eric Porter, independent investigative journalist. Uh, the panel has presented the case, I think it's fair to say, that, that the more U.S. bases in the Middle East, the more our, our, the better our strategic interests, our national interests are served. But I want to raise a couple of questions in that regard. One having to do with the fact that before the United States built such a formidable array of bases in the Middle East, that is, during the Cold War, uh, it was considered to be uh, very unwise for the United States to station U.S. troops permanently in the Middle East for political diplomatic reasons. And since the United States has done that, uh, the, the 
US policy has gone in a certain direction, which everyone in this room knows very well, and arguably, uh, the results have been catastrophic. And so one of the questions for the panel is, is there not a very serious downside to the United States moving dramatically and fundamentally to a posture uh, of having multiple bases all over the Middle East, which make it possible to intervene eas more easily than uh, during the Cold War? And two, don't the uh, US bases constitute a vested interest that can prevent the United States from taking diplomatic or other actions uh, or, or, or provide a reason for not taking action which would be in our interest. And an, an example of this occurred uh, in Syria when Qatar was known to be providing arms to people who were either close to Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda itself. And National Security Council people proposed that the United States put pressure on Qatar by withdrawing some of our uh, airplanes from Al-Udaid Air Base. It was squashed by the Pentagon because they were negotiating a new agreement with Qatar for a longer term stay in Qatar. So isn't there also a downside from the point of view of hog tying, if you will, or providing a reason for not doing things that the United States perhaps should have done? Thank you. I guess you want me to take that? I'll take it after you. Okay. Um, well, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to agree with you as much as I did with the previous questioner. Um, the, uh, the reason for the lack of U.S. involvement in the Cold War, I would argue, was because you were still emerging from a legacy of colonialism. And so the United States did not wish to be um, viewed as another colonial power. And most of these places were not there. And indeed, the one country in the Middle East that had not been colonized was Saudi Arabia. And we actually did have a base there during the Cold War. So um, I, I think that there was a different motive at play than, the, than there is now, and, and I think that the world has changed, so, so that the, the analog, I think, is, is, um, is not exact. Um, secondly, about, yes, can, can bases cause leverage or give leverage to the host? I think that is true. To a certain extent, they can. But um, if you look at uh, the, a, a large base, particularly, is a, a double-edged double sword, um, and I, I I, I, forgive me for not using Middle East examples, but I think that allows us to remove an element of emotion. So, for example, if you look at the base in Iceland, the uh, uh, soldiers, mostly sailors actually, assigned to the base in Iceland were in effect combined, they were confined, they were imprisoned on the base because the base was so large it would have completely flooded the Icelandic culture. And so, from 1942 when that base was occupied all the way forward, it was very rare for anybody to be allowed off the U.S. base in Iceland uh, until that base was abandoned because um, they felt that, yeah, you know, having these forces here is good for us strategically, but it will really alienate, tick off the locals. So you didn't have American sailors on the streets in Reykjavik. Same thing, you know, in Saudi Arabia, you don't want to have a bunch of, well, we don't have an operational base, but you don't see um, airmen uh, in downtown Doha the way that you used to see in Frankfurt or Nuremberg at the height of the Cold War. Um, the question of leverage, yes, that can sometimes be a concern, but very rarely. And usually uh, in the instances where you've had it, there's been um, a much broader basing infrastructure that is more closely integrated into the local uh, uh, economy and substructure, like in Panama, where there were multiple bases 
that were indefensible, um, that were all around, and people living off base who had been there for generations, who'd married into the local culture, and were vulnerable. And so there, there, were, there were some issues there. I have not heard of um, the uh, deliberations against moving aircraft. And I, I think that, um, as an experienced uh, practitioner of the Pentagon dark arts, if, if, if I wanted to move airplanes out of a country in the Pentagon, and somebody, and we really wanted to do it for whatever reason, we'd just say, oh, it's an exercise, or oh, there's a maintenance facility issue, you know, or something like that. And they'd be gone. And that wouldn't be an issue for NSC discussion. Uh, it, I, 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 I don't know what your source is, but I, I just find... Okay, well, I don't, as far as I know, nobody on the Wall Street Journal is on the National Security Council. I can tell you that if I were a program director in the Pentagon and it were really my desire to move aircraft, I would find an excuse to do it regardless of what political issues are. If I wanted to do it, I could do it. And there's a thousand one reasons. I could find a maintenance issue. I could find a training event. I could do something like that. But, but there, is, there is a consideration and an additional consideration that comes into play. Yes, are we jeopardizing our instincts? But you can say the same thing about trade, about education, about having Fulbright scholars. You can say the same thing for any of that. The bottom line is, unless you are Fortress America, you have interests overseas. And once you have interests and a presence overseas, whether it's cultural, educational, or military, then the host nation does have additional concerns that you have to take into account. That's not unique to the military. I, to piggyback a little bit on what David says, you can, I think you see some of this going on in Insulik. Uh, where oh, we're moving yeah. squadrons in and out, in and out, pretty frequently here recently. Um, maybe it's exercise related or their, their TAD is up, uh, but maybe we're not too happy with what Turkey's doing. Uh, so you can draw that conclusion or draw whatever you want about that, but it, it validates what you're saying. Uh, and I didn't mean to necessarily say that more is better. I mean, we wouldn't move everybody into the Middle East. We've got yeah. concerns worldwide, as everybody knows, uh, and, and we've got a limited force. Um, it's a matter of looking at what the threats are, who our allies are, who we want to defend, where we want to deploy, as to how many forces we have to station where. And we, obviously, we have significant numbers there, and we have had for, for decades. I'm not sure I agree with you that having our presence there was catastrophic. The, uh, I think we've had uh, a number of successes. Um, some of it hadn't turned out as well as we would prefer, but some of it's been okay. Uh, so, but if our troops weren't there, it certainly would be a lot worse. Can I, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but this just came to me while you were talking. The Cambridge University Press suppressed a book that was to be published on the Macedonian minority in Greece because the Greek government objected to defining Macedonia as an independent country and said that they would close the archaeological mission, in, the British archaeological mission in Athens, and mentioned that there might be violence against British interests. So even an archaeological mission gave the host country leverage over another country. Sorry. Okay. Next question. <coughs> Good afternoon, Lieutenant Bowen Vernan. Uh, Major General, you mentioned that uh, the government in Qatar is currently working to do some additions to al Udid as well as building a naval base. Is the goal of the naval base as a support facility or is the intention of possibly drawing a larger footprint of the U.S. Navy to Qatar away from Bahrain? And as a follow-on question, is this a benefit or a possible risk of consolidating U.S. forces in fewer countries or fewer bases? Thank you. 
Thank you for your question. Actually, we look to U.S. as a strategic ally. So uh, regarding the Navy base, we are building a very huge Navy base right now in uh, Amin Saeed. Uh, that what will uh, accommodate our Navy and also it will uh, have a large bear for your larger uh, Navy and uh, U.S. Navy. But uh, regarding uh, shifting from Bahrain to Qatar, it's not an issue right now. Uh, but what we are doing, what we try to do, to, to make um, our ally, which is the United States, as comfortable as we could. If, if I could just piggyback on that one for, for a second, that um, if you concentrate assets into one specific spot, you become more vulnerable. So the more varied bases you have that are available to use, the, the better off you are. Not necessarily meaning you're going to increase the size of the force, but if you could disperse those forces some, they're less vulnerable uh, to attack. So if you move some out of Bahrain and move some into Qatar, I think that's a good thing. Uh, not necessarily saying you're going you're to build up in, uh, more forces equally in each spot. Hi, um, Adam Drucker, Anchor Consulting. Uh, so my question, it might be a little bit out of the scope, but uh, so Strait of Hormuz has been a historical choke point uh, for uh, military concerns uh, due to Iran. Uh, and right now, in, uh, off the coast of Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia has been blockading uh, the Mandeb Strait, uh, as well as uh, China has opened up its new military installation in Djibouti, uh, so what lessons could the U.S. military learn from its experience at the Strait of Hormuz that it could potentially use in the Red Sea uh, to counter concerns over? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. If you've been there, you know half of it, the, other, the southern half is Omani, and, but the northern half clearly is Iranian. And, and the problem in the Persian Gulf, of course, it's constricted by that, and our Navy is, is really, as a naval officer, I know they're nervous to be operating in the Persian Gulf because of the limitations, not just the size of the Persian Gulf, but the depth as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's scary, certainly concerning the, the threat. So to try to draw an analogy between that and, and other straits, straits of Malacca, for instance, or, um, I mean, it's just a fact of geography that you have to live with uh, and figure out a way to, to work around those. The, the biggest problem, I think, one of the biggest is mining. And if they mine it, you're really, really in trouble. And of course, these days and age with technology now, with underwater drones, which makes it even more difficult, but then you have countermine measures that are, that are working that issue. So uh, I think we've taken lessons from that. I know our Navy has. I, I defer to the naval expert at the, end of, at the end of the table to see if the Qataris have taken lessons on the, on the uh, Strait of Hormuz. Uh, Julia. As you mentioned, the Strait of Hormuz is under, uh, I mean, divided between Oman and, and, uh, and Iran. Uh, uh, do, do you not, do, does Qatar run ships through the Strait of Hormuz? No, actually, no. I mean, uh, Rear. We go there just a few years, uh, in two years' time, we go into Oman to just do exercise as GCC. That's mm -hmm. it. I mean, uh, we, are, uh, we are staying in our economic zone, that's all. 
But clearly, uh, a fair amount of your uh, gas and oil is obviously shipped through the Strait of Hormuz. Yeah. The, uh, so, I mean, the protection of the Strait of Hormuz is, is vital to your economy, I would think. Next. Okay, I'll leave back there. Uh, Henry Hedker, retired government. Uh, perhaps you're aware that down in Portsmouth, Virginia, there's concern over the rising sea level and the difficulties in maintaining adequate defenses against it uh, from uh, getting a foothold on the base itself and roads connecting to it. Uh, this being the case, uh, has there been any concern and, you know, readiness uh, to deal with such an issue in the Persian Gulf? I haven't heard the question. Uh, uh, it's rising sea level as an issue for okay. bases in the Gulf. Uh -huh. The biggest, the, one of the, this is a big project for the American Security Project. Okay. Go online. We've got several papers that are printed talking about naval base Norfolk here mm -hmm. in the United States, yeah. which is, they have a problem that is uh, actually incredible. They are sinking along with the sea level increasing. Okay. So here's the largest naval base in the world literally going underwater. Oh. And they are aware of it. They know the problem. Uh, eventually, they're going to have to move somewhere. So or or redesignate it as an amphibious base. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I, I think the question, which is a good one, and I had not thought of it before, is are our naval bases in the Persian Gulf threatened by sea level rise? Now, I don't know about the, exactly about the Persian Gulf. I know Diego Garcia which is out in the Indian Ocean, is for sure. Yeah. But I'm not sure about the naval bases in the Persian Gulf. As far as I know, uh, this is not an issue in, in the Gulf right now. Uh, this is as far as I know. Yeah, I, I think a greater issue is temperature change. Um, you know, if you look at the projections for temperature rise, uh, uh, many of the cities in the Gulf are going to be uninhabitable. And I know that... Um, you know, if you talk to the guys who work on the aerial tankers at Al-Dafra Air Base in the UAE, you know, it's like 120 degrees out there on the tarmac. You know, you, you have a concrete tarmac reflecting heat up over an airplane, aluminum airplane reflecting heat down. It's like being in an oven. And yeah. I think these guys pass out after 20 minutes, you know, maintaining the plane in July. So um, uh, if you increase the temperature, it gets even worse. Uh, the secondary issue is the adequacy of water. Uh, of course, there's desalination running out, but what people forget is that when you desalinate water, you inject hypersalinated water back into the Gulf, which kind of creates a, a reinforcing cycle of, of awkwardness and, and also um, complicates traditional anti-submarine warfare, anti-mine things like sonar and stuff like that because it creates different surface level. Pretty, pretty big talk for an infantryman, huh? Yeah. So, so, uh, so the bottom line is environmental is a problem, whether it's rising sea level or, or the other issues associated with it. I, th I think it is a concern for the viability of the entire commercial and military infrastructure in the Gulf. Okay, we will take one more question. Uh, one in the back, I see. Yes. Back okay. Voice of America. I will go a little bit north to Injerlik. Uh, in Turkish media, time to time, there are discussions about uh, closing Injerlik. Uh, is, it is it easy uh, to close a U.S. base? Is it only a government's decision, or there are some agreements about that? Uh, and what's the importance of Injerlik for U.S.? Well, uh, is it easy for the U.S. to close an overseas base? Well depending on who's there and 
what kind of equipment you have and a number of troops. If you're evacuating the troops is e relatively easy. You move them in, in a matter of days. Uh, the, the hardware is a different story, and it would take a long time. Now, is it a, uh, can the United States just unilaterally decide, I'm going to close that base? Yes, they could. Sure. Um, anytime they want. I mean, it, what's that? Sure. Sure. But uh, obviously, it doesn't make for good friends. Uh, and, you, and you look at the strategic importance of Insulik, uh, for the same reasons we talk about basing in other countries around the Persian Gulf, it, it applies to Turkey. They're a NATO member. Um, we have strategic assets there. Um, I think we would like to stay there, and I've, Secretary Mattis has indeed said that recently, that we are staying in Insulik, <coughs> despite some rumors to the contrary. Um, and I think it's in our interest and their interest too for us to maintain that base and keep our forces there. Turkey's not without its own political problems, as you're well aware. And you know, a, a military coup didn't exactly enhance their uh, reputation in the world or with us. Uh, and it's a tough situation. Um, but, but again, I think Secretary Mattis has said we're staying, so I think we're staying. Yeah. Well, Interlake is an extremely important base to the United States just because, um, you know, if you look at the combat operations against Daesh in Syria and Iraq, if you, you, if you fly out of Interlake, you don't have to refuel en route. You, you have superior loiter time, superior lo logger time over the targets. You can carry more armaments. Otherwise, you have to go from bases like El Dafra, El Yadid, uh, Ali El Salim, and work your way up, probably refuel en route which limits your, your mission time, your time over target. Um, so interlook is extremely important. Uh, the United States probably would not unilaterally leave interlook unless we were told to by the hosts. Complicating the matter is if you look at the infrastructure at Interlick Air Base, some of that was built by the Turkish Air Force, some of it was built by the United States, some of it was built by NATO. So there is, um, and, and there are a number of, of bases that have the same configuration across Europe in NATO. So there are elements of that air base that could not be closed for specific purposes unless Turkey were willing to risk a rupture, not just with the United States, but also with NATO. So there would be some activities, I would imagine, that even if the Turks said, let's go, let's go, you know, that they would do it. Now, I know that operating costs at Interlick Air Base are extremely expensive compared with other U.S. Air Force Europe bases. I only know this anecdotic by examples. Um, and so um, uh, I, I think that the, the bureaucracy of the Turkish Armed Forces would not want to see any of that go. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, if it's a political decision, it would be it would signal a very large rupture between Turkey and the United States. And I don't think it's in Turkey's interest to Let's go. And I don't think the United States would leave voluntarily. It would cost an immense amount of money to recreate that capability elsewhere in the region. Okay. I want to thank the panelists for coming today. Please give a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Great.